Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Mead. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. And I'm Danny Webb. And this is The Blackest Eyes, a place for intelligent conversation about horror movies. What we try to do here is not only discuss the typical elements of horror movie reviews, such as the scare factor and strength of performances and things like that, but we also consider the movie's worldview and philosophy and faith implications, which tend to be things that are often overlooked in horror films. So this is episode five of season one, and in this first season we are watching and discussing movies related to exorcisms. Tonight we're going to discuss the 2005 instant classic, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, directed by Scott Derrickson. We're glad you're with us. Hang on tight. Here we go. Guys, the exorcism of Emily Rose. Good to be back with you. How's everybody doing? Danny, how's life in Eastern Kentucky? Hey, going fine. Uh, school semester just started, so I'm adjusting to, you know, teaching remotely. Yeah, a lot of adjustments. And how's that going? Classes have started. You've been in it what a week at this. Yeah, I've been in a week. Uh, I'm kind of loaded with straight online courses, and those are a ton of work. Um, but my hybrid-ish course where I'm in the classroom and some students are there and some are online, it's going surprisingly well. It it still feels like a normal class. Uh, I was really nervous about that one, but that's actually better than straight online. Yeah. Scott is a professor of theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Have you guys started classes yet, Scott? No, we actually bumped back our start date a couple weeks. Um, with it's COVID related and we start Monday so in a few days and we are going to be all online we're totally online so at least to start with yeah okay very good well we've got a great movie to talk about tonight with the exorcism of Emily Rose a lot of conversation points in this film I think normally what we do is start off with a summary of the film in case you've not seen it you can at least track with us a little bit better knowing what it's about and Scott, I think it is your turn tonight to give us a summary of The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Okay, so um, it's a great cast. Uh, Laura Linney plays uh, an attorney, Aaron Bruner. Uh, Tom Wilkinson plays a priest, a Catholic priest, Father Richard Moore. And Campbell Scott plays um, a prosecuting attorney, Ethan Thomas. And then uh, the star of the show, Jennifer Carpenter as... Emily Rose, and um, so it's an as you know, based on the season we're in, this is an exorcism movie, and the movie begins with um, uh, the Rose family farmhouse, and uh, the authorities have been called, a coroner, and it looks like maybe a sheriff have been called in. Emily is at the beginning of the film. Emily has died. She is in her bed up in her room at her home, and she has died. Um, the they, uh, the priest who is there is arrested. What we learn 
is that Emily, um, when she went off to college to study to be a teacher, she began to experience all the kinds of phenomena that you often experience in these demon possession movies. Um, strange uh, sounds and smells and uh, visual manifestations of scary things. And she uh, heard voices. She, um, uh, she was contorting and had all sorts of uh, physical um, things going on that was kind of kind of creepy looking and scary looking. Well, anyway, so she is treated by her doctors as if she has some kind of, you know, a medical condition, a neurological medical condition, something like maybe a mental illness like schizophrenia or uh, a different kind of medical illness like maybe epilepsy or some kind of combination of those things. But the drugs they give her don't really help. And so she and her family turn to their parish priest. And this is the character played by Tom Wilkinson. He comes in, he gets permission from his archbishop to perform an exorcism on Emily because he believes, and the family believes, that this is not merely a medical problem, but is probably a spiritual issue. He begins the exorcism and, um, uh, well, she dies. Uh, you know, she's not eating, she's... Uh, um, uh, getting weaker, she does. She just eventually her body wears out and she dies. So he's been arrested now, and he's going on trial. So the bulk of the movie is really the trial uh, with the defense attorney, played by Laura Lenny, who's a skeptic. She's kind of an agnostic, but she's taking this on because she thinks it'll advance her career as a as an attorney, and she'll get to be a partner in her law firm. Campbell Scott, playing the prosecutor, prosecuting this priest. Uh, for negligent homicide or some kind of thing like that. He's actually a Christian, but he thinks that this priest broke the law. He should have um, let doctors take care of Emily, and he, and he interfered and then persuaded her and the family not to take advantage of medicines and so on. So the trial um, brings, they both sides bring up witnesses, and at the very end, um, you know, sort of the climax, uh, the, the jury does find uh, uh, Father Moore guilty, but they recommend that he only, that his sentence only be time served. So it's kind of a win, kind of a loss. So um, that's the gist. Yeah, great job. So let's talk about just our overall opinion of the film, um, you know, experience uh, viewing it. Was it scary? performances what do you think about the performances you know overall just thumbs up and down Danny we'll start with you what do you think about the exorcism of Emily Rose I enjoyed it I, I believe it's going to turn out that uh, I enjoyed it a little bit less than you guys did but we'll see um, I thought the performances are great I'm a huge Jennifer Carpenter fan uh, who played Emily Rose I love her from the Dexter TV show and I'm always glad to see her and stuff and I thought she was great Laura Linney was great Tom Wilkinson was great um, it was actually Campbell Scott was great the, the, the performances were really good it felt a little too much like a Law and Order episode during the courtroom scenes the I don't know it it, it, it felt I thought the cinematography looked kind of TV like it, it it wasn't all that compelling to me during the courtroom scenes, but the horror elements and the actual exorcism and Emily's decline into mental illness or you know possession 
all of that I thought was really, really compelling. So anytime it sort of switched to focused on Emily, I was really, really interested in it. Yeah. What did you think about the overall approach of the film to come at it that way? You know, the majority of the film is set in a courtroom and then we're seeing flashbacks and uh, as folks are telling the story and testifying and witnessing and whatnot, then we see, you know, the uh, we're able to watch what they're talking about. Did you find that to be, did that work well for you? It, yeah, it actually did. It worked fine. Again, it was just sort of the execution of those court scenes that I didn't like. That structure where we get flashbacks during a a, a courtroom drama or you know any other kind of uh, framing device, very common, obviously, in horror. And uh, and I've always kind of enjoyed it. It's I mean, it dates back at least to uh, Henry Miller. Right? So it's 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 a uh, I'm sorry, Henry James, not Henry Miller, uh, to turn of the screw. But yeah, th- that kind of framing device works for me, but I just didn't, this particular execution of it, I didn't like as much. Which I guess is kind of weird, because I did like uh, the Aaron Brunner lawyer character and in, 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 in her progression during the film. Scott, what is your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I saw it when it was in the theater back in 2005. Um and I've talked about it in a lot of different contexts over the years. Um, I think the performances are really outstanding. I mean, I got to hand it to the director, Scott Derrickson, because he j- he got an A-list cast for a horror movie. You know, I mean, these were these are people that are top of the list, right? Especially in 2005. I mean, Jennifer Carpenter was unknown at the time. But, but other than that, I, I think he got a great cast and he got great performances out of them for me. I um, I liked the courtroom thing because for me it, it just really felt different for an exorcism movie to go at this from did he commit is he responsible for this girl's death because underlying that whole discussion is is this real and is there um, a spiritual world or are all these spiritual things that we find hard to explain can they really be explained away by science and cured with medicine that's really what this was. Um, struggling with as a lot of exorcism movies do I thought it was successful um, so overall I give it a I give it a big thumbs up yeah I give it a thumbs up too and over the course of this season uh, where we've been talking about exorcism movies multiple times the issue has come up about the distinction between psychology and uh, the medical field and science versus the possibility of possession and the necessity of the church and how the church has been viewed favorably in most of these films that we've been reviewing. And this kind of takes that a little bit to the next level where we actually have a priest who has been arrested for breaking the law, negligent homicide. And how are we to think about that? How is a jury to process what that means? People of faith who believe as opposed to science and what the medical field has to say. I found the character of Ethan Thomas to be absolutely fascinating. I'd like to talk to him about him a little bit more in just a moment uh, because as you mentioned in your plot synopsis, he is a man of faith and yet uh, he's pretty passionate about his prosecuting uh, of the priest and feels like he has broken the law and deserves to go to jail and so forth. Uh, Let's think about it from the perspective of just the scare factor, the fear factor here. Danny, you mentioned this a little bit in in your comments, but is this a scary movie? How effective were the scares during the flashbacks? I think some of the scenes where you look and you see her in that 
contorted position that kind of took you by surprise. A couple of those scenes were very effective. The first time that she looks over in the classroom and she sees her classmate with the the black, uh, you know, presuming blood or whatever the the liquid is coming out of his eyes and out of his mouth, that was certainly a jump scare. But overall, Fear Factor, Danny, is the movie scary in that sense? What do you think? I don't think it's particularly scary. Um, There's tension, and and I I think there are... um, you know, there, are, there are moments of dread, and and you certainly um, you kind of feel for Emily and for what she's going through. So it's got it's got that emotional effect that you know Poe talks about. But uh, I don't know if it was I was ever scared, and I do believe that the constant moving back and forth between the courtroom and the um, the more horror focused scenes probably has an effect on that. Okay, that's fair. Scott, what do you think? Yeah. So the two things that I thought were scary about this movie, well, a couple things, um, maybe three things. Uh, the facial, when, when Emily sees people's faces that looks like they're melting and there's black coming out of their eyes and stuff. Yeah, that one, that really creeped me out. She sees it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I, thought her, I thought her performance was extremely convincing. And when she was doing those sort of gymnastic, acrobatic, sort of bending her back over, mm-hmm. that was it it was weird it was it was unsettling and it has been much mimicked so in yes. 2005 i don't think that was a much of a i i hadn't seen that that much so it was really uh, disturbing and shocking but i have seen films since then that have done that um i thought some of the scenes of the exorcism itself were, um, and again, do a lot to Jennifer Carpenter's performance, um, where she's speaking Latin and she's channeling the voices of the, of the demons. I, I, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't terrifying. I wasn't shaking in my shoes, but it was, yeah, it gave me enough of a chill for me to be thrilled by it. You remember the scene where Jason, her boyfriend, is in the, the dorm room with her and he's holding her and he wakes up and she's not there. And then he looks and he gasps and then we get his point of view and she's in the floor in that strange position yeah that that to me was pretty frightening you know because she's just she's staring right at at him and with the point of view staring right at us as we look at her and it just makes you so uncomfortable and maybe that is a better word for it you just you always feel uncomfortable as you're watching because you're not really sure what she's going to look like or you're going to see through her eyes what somebody else looks like and you're just waiting for that imagery to show up and yeah i thought that was yeah i thought that was pretty pretty spooky uh, waiting for the next thing but let's talk about ethan thomas for a minute the prosecutor who is uh self the reason they choose him the reason the district attorney uh chooses ethan thomas is because he is going to be sympathetic because he's a person of faith and he goes to church every sunday i think they said he was a Methodist, maybe? Is yeah. that right? He yeah. wasn't Roman Good. Catholic. Yeah, right. Uh, so he, he comes in, but he's skeptical. I My take is he's even skeptical of the ideal of demonic possession to a certain degree. And then you have Aaron Bruner, who is a self-professed agnostic, who seems, throughout the film, to become more open to the possibility of possession. And I just want to get your guys' thoughts on this because I think probably most modern-day evangelicals certainly believe in spiritual darkness, certainly believe in evil. But I'm not sure that 
we would be ready to consider the full weight or the full possibility of demonic possession. But I think we have to ask the question, why? Why is that? You know, if we believe the radical nature of the message of the gospel, Jesus as God incarnate who suffered and died on a cross only to be risen from the dead by the power of the Father and then ascend to the Father's right hand where he's reigning and ruling over his kingdom, then why wouldn't we put more stock into the reality of spiritual forces at work in the world? And it may be, this may be a Baptist thing. I'm a Baptist pastor. Scott, maybe you're getting ready to say from a Lutheran perspective, no, we're, that's, we're, we're on this all the time, you know. But for, I think for Baptists, we believe in evil. But we are more prone to go straight to the practical explanations. Let's figure out a, a way to reason through this instead of allowing the weight of the reality of darkness to kind of sit with us for a while. That makes sense. How, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I, um, well, there's a lot of modern Christians, even amongst the more evangelical or conservatively inclined Christians who are, are skeptical about the supernatural, you know, and I've, I've even quipped that there's a lot of Christians or people who identify as Christians who are basically atheists. I mean, they, they believe in God, but they live as if there is no God. <laughs> And so the whole idea that there are angels and demons interacting in the world or that God has his hand on people's lives in the world is kind of absent, even by people that if you ask them, you know, the, the doctrinal questions and so forth, they will say, yeah, I, I yes. buy that. But they're right. not, you know, it's not really part of their daily thought world. Right. And what's interesting about that, Scott, is then when we come to the model prayer, I was talking about this with my staff today. I mean, the exorcism of Emily Rose came up in staff meeting today. <laughs> and I say, you know, the model prayer, when we see the Lord Jesus say, here's how you pray, mm -hmm. our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pick up on that one pretty good. Let's give adoration to God for who he is and what he has done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray that all the time. Now, you know, we're always talking about the will of God uh, being accomplished in the world. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We're really good at that. <laughs> let's, let's, I need what I need here, God, and, and give it to me. But then one of the major points of the model prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Mm -hmm. And that one, uh, I'm not so sure, gets noticed as much, uh, at least in Baptist circles. Well, and it, so in my... Um, in my circles as a Lutheran pastor, pretty conservative group in my, my tribe, um, we kind of follow a, a preaching schedule. Okay, so um, we're not required to, but I, I generally sort of would preach through the Gospels, the, the four Gospels frequently, and, you know, make all sorts of allusions to throughout the Scripture. But my point is that I routinely, you know, a couple times a year would come across passages of Jesus performing exorcisms. So I, I sort of semi-regularly preached about Jesus the exorcist. And I have had people say, well, you know, isn't that just, you know, those are really just epileptics or there's some other kind of explanation. And my response has always been that, well, for me and you, we might not be able to tell the difference between uh, schizophrenia and demonic possession, but I think Jesus could tell the difference. And, you know, and so, and he, at least this teaches us that this is real, mm -hmm. can happen, 
Um, and there's no reason to think that it doesn't continue to happen. I don't think we want to overdo and see a demon behind every That's every right. bush, but um, I think we have to be um, uh, uh, sort of attuned to that as a possibility. Yeah. Well, and that's what the Lord says, right, is watch, be aware, mm-hmm. because your adversary is a roaring lion. Uh, and that's just been, you know, since I've watched this movie and the courtroom idea, but it's this Ethan Thomas character who very clearly is passionate, and I take him at his word. I, I think he's a man of faith, but this was not a direction he was really willing to go, or it's the possibility he just wants to win the case. So yeah. that's what yeah. he's that's what he's putting forth there as, as a prosecutor whose aim is... To, to do what he's supposed to do. Eastern Kentucky, you know, we've talked a little bit, Danny, in the past about folks in Eastern Kentucky, that culture, that place, uh, location, certainly a belief in supernatural, certainly a belief in evil and darkness and ghosts and hauntings. And what's it like there? You know, it, it, would somebody watch this movie and say, oh, yeah, well, that happened last week, you know, or what, what do you think? What would it be like in Letcher County? I, I believe we've, you know, again, I don't have the theological background you guys do and um, but I believe we've talked about this before but I, I talk to so many students from here when we do the when I do the horror film course who just do not want to watch a movie that involves demons or exorcism because they say that feels real to them that yeah, really hits them yeah. right so I, I, I think that would be true here uh, you know, with exorcism or um, that there are probably people that uh, have more belief in the actual you know, interaction of with supernatural beings uh, on a daily basis or in extreme cases uh, than maybe the general public. Uh, again, hard to say, just on my personal experience, though. With Ethan Thomas's character, did you find the rub between his profession of faith and his pushing back pretty hard uh, against Father Moore, did that create him as a an, an antagonist, or, you know, did it really not disrupt you in terms of the way you felt about the character? How, you know, his juxtaposition there, What? how did that sit with you guys? It, for me, it really seemed a little odd that he was, there didn't seem any moment that he believed that it, there was anything supernatural going on mm-hmm. uh, for a man, it and it started to feel sim- very symbolic to me. Like this was, um, I'm going more literary here than theological, but that that it was kind of representing the Protestant versus Catholic worldview, uh, the Catholics with their rituals and their iconography, and uh, you know, and the sort of the Protestants that are more you know focused on the individual and relationships with God. Uh, I, I was wondering if it was, you know, more of a broad statement about that than, you know, any kind of deep worldview statement. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, there's actually a scene in the movie, I'm going to piggyback on that in just a second, that I found to be funny and maybe possibly a, a little jab at the Protestant-Catholic distinction. Um, Scott, what about Thomas's, you know, Ethan Thomas' character for you? Was it Was it jarring to you, or did it yeah, a little bit, you know, it, 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 yeah, I mean, I've met Christians as you have too, that are, you know, as I was saying before, are, you know, kind of living the world as if it's not infused with spiritual realities. 
there's a skepticism uh you know some christians might even you know i mean you know deny the possibility or the existence of angels or demons i mean i think it's clearly a biblical teaching but there are people that who see themselves as christians and would say you know that they believe christian teaching but they they don't buy that and yeah i i thought the character in the film that's how it struck me. This guy, he goes to church, he goes to choir practice, he teaches Sunday school, all that was said of him. But this whole idea of demon possession, for him, that superstition, it's medieval, and he, he just didn't seem to be buying it at all. In fact, he was sort of mocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made a few comments that this is silly and, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the director, Scott Derrickson, do uh, you you actually know him personally do you scott i I don't know him personally but we're facebook friends and we have chatted a couple times through through facebook chat yeah do you know what is his faith background do you know well he, he his background is evangelical christian he went to i think biola or you know a, a standard evangelical school he has you know, he, he's probably more of a, um, what you might say, a moderate or even uh-huh. a little liberal on some things. But he, you know, he, he intended, I think, from things I've read, he intended with this movie um, to, to, you know, like a lot, like maybe Blatty was trying to do with The Exorcist, to try to keep the discussion going about the reality of God, which I think was a serious theme of this movie and especially the ending. Um, so yeah, I think Derrickson was really trying to make um, a point, a, re- a theological, a religious, or spiritual point, while also making a, a fine film. Yeah, absolutely. But you you would say that you you think he's Protestant? Oh no, yeah, I know he is. Unless he's changed, I, I know he went to Biola and or or one of those types, Wheaton or something, and I know that he was identified as an evangelical. Unless he's unless he's changed in recent years. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question for another day is uh, normally when somebody says an evangelical Christian within that mm-hmm. tradition, I think Protestant, but the case is being made that there can be evangelical Catholics as well, uh, but yeah, that we sure. can have that conversation for another day. Uh, but there was, did you catch, did either of you catch this? And maybe this is reading way too much into it, but at one point, Father Moore is on the stand and he's talking about when Emily just no longer was going to keep taking the medicine. That wasn't doing it. It was hindering the, uh, the exorcism or, or, you know, her care and her healing and whatnot. And he very emphatically, though this, this is a Catholic priest, right? And he very, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. He very emphatically says she had to see this through to the end by faith alone. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a pretty uh, significant statement in the Protestant Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, and and so forth. That particular word alone was a meaningful thing, and yeah, I I, I wrote that down I, I, because I thought, wow, that's kind of kind of interesting. That's got to be. I mean, surely that wasn't. That had to be intentional. Someone right? knew so, this. Yeah. Someone. Yeah. I mean, that's just so, so funny. Right. Uh, so. Uh, Catholics would have no problem affirming that faith is essential. Right. It's the, the alone word that's a problem. Right? Yeah. That goes in, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I yeah. saw the same thing. 
Um, let's talk about Aaron for a minute. She, she comes under what Father Moore is referencing as attack, a spiritual attack, forces of darkness, 3 a.m. thing, the, you know, 3 p.m. being when uh, Christ was on the cross. So this is the, uh, what, how did he refer to it? Uh, the anti-hour or something like that. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the, the 3 o'clock a.m. is the spiritual darkness time. And, uh, Danny, I was going to ask you, because one thing that I, this maybe was a part of the film that I felt like was was wanting, which is it's it was creepy. You know, she was waking up at three. You could tell that she was processing kind of what's going on, especially in the courtroom when he mentions, you know, he explains what 3 a.m. is all about. There were some scary scenes there, but then it just kind of stopped. Like, there, it didn't seem like the, they concluded or brought that to a satisfactory ending for me anyway. It just, what really happened to her? There, she wasn't ever really physically attacked or anything like that. It was some creepy things, and then we never really got to see anything else about that. You know what I mean? What did you think about the, the attack that she came under? Yeah, I, I do know what you mean. I guess there really wasn't um, much to the uh, the attack she was which she went under. But again, the uh, Lauren Linney's performance, you sort of felt like maybe there were there was more happening off screen or that or that it was having a deep psychological effect and 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 actually you know affecting how she was viewing the world in this case and and the truth of the uh, i mean it's her job to defend him regardless right of whether she believes it but you start to get the idea that she's you know that, that she's starting to awaken to some kind of you know reality of this supernatural world uh but i don't know if i think you're right maybe something ended up in the cutting room floor there there really isn't a payoff to that yeah payoff's a good word and it, it definitely was impacting the way that she was willing to approach the case too right i mean she was willing to let him have his say in court and probably that's not what she would have done originally and so forth yeah certainly scott do you piggyback on that yeah um yeah i mean it was yeah, I see what you're saying. It was kind of incomplete. There was that interesting scene where she was telling Father Moore about an experience she had that we didn't actually see until, you know, they sort of show it when she's describing it, about her finding that locket and it has her initials on it and all this sort of thing. She thinks it's a sign. So, you know, it does suggest maybe there are things going on in her head and in her life that, that we don't don't see on screen. But it could have been... They could have done definitely more with that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about philosophy here and, you know, even worldview on this statement here. Towards the beginning of the film, or maybe it's the middle, towards the middle. Uh, well, first she says, he, I think he's like, are you agnostic? And she's like, I, I don't really know. Then he's like, then you are. <laughs> you know, it just like cuts her off and I was just very definitive about if you have to think about it then you are that's that but then at some point in the movie he says demons exist whether you believe in them or not and that's that's an interesting statement isn't it in terms of objective truth thinking that there are realities to the world in which we live that are true regardless of what we think so I'm sitting in a chair right now and I could say I don't really believe this is a chair i think this is a bed and anybody in the room with me is going to say well it's not that's <laughs> not a bed that's a chair doesn't really matter what you believe and yet i don't know if we would you know we, we're certainly entering into a post-christian culture and, and ways of thinking but postmodernism now has 
you know, for a long time now, there's been this approach of truth that are there really these kinds of absolutes? What is your perception? How do you frame the world and the reality? And the way that you frame those things then are going to become your reality. And this has had implications in all kinds of areas, sexuality and so forth. Um, but the modern versus postmodern approach to that statement, you know, is interesting because Emily Rose is dead. So nobody can argue that. You know, what has happened that's led to that? And for Father Moore, it's demonic activity. And whether or not you believe in it, yeah, it doesn't really matter, you know, because it's true. And that kind of then opens the door for the whole courtroom scene. The, the, is it true or is it not true? How can we, how can we even prove such a thing? So, uh, yeah, Scott, your take on that. Yeah, this is why I really loved Tom Wilkinson's performance because, you know, he's a good actor, but playing a man of faith, playing a Catholic priest in this particular sort of setting, I thought he, he, you know, he clearly, he's a devout man. You could just tell that this character is a strong believer and he, he trusts Christ. Yeah, he has moments when he's scared, but he does what he's called to do anyway. I, I just was... That was insp- actually a little inspiring for me. I thought his performance was was sort of sort of awesome, and his devotion to Emily, his parishioner, one of his sheep. He's very devoted to her, um, and being her sort of apostle, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about the ending. But um, yeah, he was he was a, a a wise person and a but a but a believer in the reality of good and evil. Um, that's one of the things that these movies and horror movies in general are often good at communicating that there really is maybe something that's hard to explain or impossible to explain just using naturalistic um, you know naturalistic outlook well that's that's exactly where I was going to go which is horror movies provide this kind of framework more than any other genre getting us to think about this philosophy and worldview and sometimes it's set up with various different kinds of tropes parents don't believe what's mm-hmm. going on with a young person and and this the reality of supernatural but the young person knows it but it's true whether or not the parents believe it there is a stinking killer in my closet and that's <laughs> that you know and i've got to do something about it danny your, your take on that okay so here's where i'm going to disagree with you guys about this film and and i think pretty strongly is I believe as a, a jury member or someone in that courtroom, I would completely buy into what you're saying, that that this is about confronting the truth of that. But as a viewer of the film, I think those horror scenes were so clearly supernatural that how could we be left with a question? I don't think what the you know the attorney brought up to challenge it in the courtroom should play very well with the the film audience because we saw some clearly supernatural things. We would have to believe that even the scenes that were from the point of view of the priest and the boyfriend and the father were also really actually from Emily's point of view, so she becomes this unreliable narrator. But I don't believe the cinematography, the camera work, the the point of view shots... uh, actually sell it that way right we saw other people in the film besides emily rose experience things that can't really be dismissed with the arguments that the that the prosecutor was using for me anyway so that's my take on it do you think 
But let, let's think about intention here. Do you think the intention of the film was to create a scenario where we're trying to figure it out along with the jury? I mean, I, I think that's what you guys were suggesting by that conversation, right? That if 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 horror films in general tackle the issues that way, then then you know the audience has to also be going through that that questioning. And I just don't feel like this one sold that question in a way that uh, was particularly compelling. It felt like just the courtroom scenes were underlying how clueless humans were to the fact that this you know supernatural world existed. You know, as you were talking there about that, Danny, it occurred to me that at one point early in the courtroom scenes, there was actually a two scenes back-to-back flashbacks where the first time you saw Emily seeing the, the black, you know, liquid, whatever it is, coming out of the people's faces and, and their distorted faces and those eerie moments. And then, as I, th- I guess it was in, when Ethan Thomas was talking about an alternative to what may have been happening, those same scenes were shown again, except the people were normal. And you saw that actually nothing was coming out of their eyes. There was nothing black on them. And at that moment, I thought maybe we were going to get that approach for the entire courtroom saga, that we were going to see what uh, the defense from Emily's point of view, maybe she was an unreliable narrator, what hers looked like versus what the prosecutions looked like, and we would see back and forth. But no, uh, that really never happened again. And I think you're right. There's, There's no question that what we're seeing is clearly a possessed possessed girl but i think in the discussion that at least what i tried to say a moment ago was not so much the horror films try to make us question that as much as they push back pretty hard against this idea that reality is only what we make it to be when in fact horror movies say no there is a reality of evil that's pretty much in your face and i think there's different ways that horror movies tend to convey that um but you know what? You remember that scene where it went from one to the other, and you didn't really—you could see it through Ethan Thomas's point of view as well. You guys remember that? Yeah, and it, and it really did seem like that was going to be the pattern, right? Uh, and then they uh, again—I I don't know if follow throughs right. They may have just never intended it to be, mm-hmm. uh, and or even maybe we're supposed to—we're supposed to continue that in our own, you know, viewing. Um, just subconsciously or but uh, as soon as you get the different point of view cameras and the different uh, you know and, and the people that are relating their story even in court then then Emily's mental illness is you know not really a factor for you as a viewer let's talk about the the doctor that came in for the defense Dr. Um, Sadira Adana and she had an interesting testimony, didn't she? Because it almost seems like she could have been saying, listen, it, it doesn't really matter if she was really possessed or not. The exorcism would have worked if it wasn't for uh, the gam- whatever, whatever the medication was for the epilepsy, because that medication had an impact on her, her brain, her physicality, and the exorcism then, the, even the psychological elements of the exorcism were not able to accomplish what they normally would have accomplished because of the side effects of this drug. And I found that to be really in some ways fascinating because on the one hand she was saying, oh yes, the exorcism absolutely can work, but then she left the door kind of open to, but not necessarily for the reasons you think 
it was going to work. Did you pick up on that, Scott? What do you think about that? Yeah, I thought that's, I think you're uh, analyzing that, right? I, um, I, I thought it was fascinating. She was, an, I think, an anthropologist. And so she, her expertise was that she had seen demon possession and exorcisms in all kind of cultures. And yeah, she was supporting the idea that that something happens that we call possession, which you know she doesn't she doesn't quite say, yeah, it's the it's exactly the way the Bible talks about with demons and fallen angels. and she doesn't quite say that or confirm that, but she says, I got the impression that, you know, whatever it is, there's something that happens to human beings that can't be explained by epilepsy or schizophrenia and exorcism alone can solve it. And yeah, uh, right. Uh, So um, whatever, like you said, whatever it is, whatever's going on, the, by interrupting the uh, the process with these mind-numbing drugs, these these deadening kind of drugs, or you know that stifle the the neurons, that that in some way interfered with the exorcism being effective. And it's it's an interesting position because I think coming back to my discussion just a moment ago about where Baptists are any anyway on this position, I think what they would be more willing to say is, well, you know, demon oppression. Uh, is is a reality that physical darkness is is attacking us and oppressing us, and that shows up in a varieties of ways: drug di- addictions and alcoholism, and uh, you know physical abuse and marital abuse and emotional abuse, and all of these ways that we harm one another and harm ourselves. Yeah, that's the that's the impact of a cursed earth of the reality of evil, uh, but never maybe not necessarily willing to go to the extent of someone is possessed. Uh, and then we can get into the whole discussion of whether or not a, a Christian can be possessed in the first place. But that character seemed to provide some middle ground, it seemed, in the film. You have Father Moore, who's, of course, where he is, and then you have Ethan, where he is. And she kind of came in and bridged the gap. So from a defense standpoint, that may have been a really brilliant move uh, for her to make. Danny, any follow-up on that idea? Yeah, only that it didn't work. Um I, I don't think he was still found guilty. Uh, yeah, I thought she was a fascinating character, and I, and absolutely, the term you used is correct. She was the middle ground. This was a sort of you know atheistic academic who still saw a reality in possession that did not require faith to buy into, and still you know would allow exorcism to be a, a, a truth you know a, a cure uh, I, I really liked her I, I thought the that was the one performance that felt a little off to me um, I found her a little bit I don't know silly seeming uh, the way she delivered her lines uh, but um, but yeah I, I, I did that was one of the highlights for me is that they found this way to uh, to underline a, a possibility that both sides could be correct. Yeah, I think so too. During the actual possession, during the actual, uh, or I'm sorry, the actual exorcism, I just want to say, I don't know if there's anything to really necessarily exposit here or, or comment, but it's just so, I just bless her heart. You know, the Father Moore begins to try to get the demon to identify himself, which has been another recurring theme throughout all of these movies, that there is a certain vulnerability 
uh, of the demon during the exorcism if they say their name and identify themselves and whatnot. So the father, Father Moore, is trying to get uh, the demon to identify. And so when that begins to happen, oh, it's not one, it's not two, there's three demons inside this poor girl, and apparently it's like the top of the list of, uh, you know, at one point, didn't one of them even say they were Lucifer? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, then, like, I'm the demon who possessed Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and I'm the demon who, you know, Nero. And you're like, this poor girl, man. <laughs> you know, uh, what did she do to, to attract the the top rung, as it were, of the demonic activity? What did you think of that, Scott? Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that this is. I don't know. I mean, you know, so so Ethan even's like, wow, you know, Father Moore, you think you're sort of God's gunslinger because it it, it did kind of seem, wow, that's a that's a pretty tall order right there for me to to buy that Lucifer himself. And but I think that um, maybe another side to that is the fact that at least for at least for Moore, I don't know if this is official Catholic teaching or whatever, but I know that for, for or I believe that for Father Moore. A Christian could be possessed, and just like a Christian could have schizophrenia, or yeah. you know that a Christian could be possessed, and that Emily was a model Christian, yes, and and um, possessing her was a great coup in a way, and that her fighting it through, and because of it ending up in court, this whole thing, her story being told in court, this would be a great witness to the reality of God and the devil. And so, you know, it, it, it is kind of a cosmic big showdown. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. And that, did, that brings us then to the end. Um, so let's talk about the end of the film uh, for just a moment. He, Father Moore is able to tell the rest of the story. He's able to respond to a question by reading a letter that Emily Rose herself wrote uh, concerning what she knew was ultimately coming her, her demise and um, you know in, in within that letter we have uh, a reference to the Virgin Mary and uh, that she has this vision that she's going to be able to be used in some pretty significant ways father Moore himself says that he believes that Emily will become a saint will be sainted by the Roman Catholic Church in the future um, what was your take? You know, Scott, it sounded like you had some ideas about this. What was your take of the ending? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought that was pretty interesting stuff. So, um, yeah, so she has a, she records before she dies because someone who's possessed isn't necessarily out of their mind all the time. You know, they may have moments of lucidity. And in her final hours, she wrote down the, her testimony and that she had seen, she believed, she kind of even had an out-of-body experience where she was a, spoke to to the Virgin Mary, and Mary gave her the option. It said, um, "You can, we can take you out of this right now, and it'll be over. Um, you, you know, you'll die. Basically, you'll, die. or you can go back and you can stay, and you can kind of fight this to the bitter end, and in some way, by doing that, become sort of a light, a beacon to everyone that the spiritual world is real." And she chooses that. Uh, you know, given that option, well, you can continue to fight the devil, or we can give you relief right now. That um, that she chose to to fight fight back, and of course, they have the whole thing where she receives the stigmata, those the mystical um, appearance of the actual wounds of Christ on your hands and feet, 
um, you know, that is sometimes said of Catholic uh, saints. She has that. Of course, Ethan has his own explanation, naturalistic explanation for how that may have occurred. But um, yeah, the whole beatification, her, her sort of becoming very Christ-like, you know, hence the stigmata. I just thought that was just interesting, very thought-provoking. Um, you know, as a Protestant, I'm, I would probably not have explained um, or written a script exactly like that, but I, I thought it was very thought-provoking. Well, being the, the Christ example is the point that I was going to make. It, it, it reminds me of uh, at the betrayal of Jesus. At one point, Jesus says, Do you not know that I could call on my Father and angels would come and deliver me instantly? I'm out of here. And uh, but of course, Christ doesn't do that. And he's the second Adam. He doesn't fail in the face of temptation like that. And so he uh, sees his mission through to the end. Um, obviously, the, we, we find out later that if the forces of darkness knew ultimately what was happening, that they were sending themselves to the grave, they never would have crucified the Lord, but they did. And Christ is uh, the victor. So that's, those were the things that I was thinking when there were those options placed in front of Emily and she takes the more difficult, but obviously according to the movie and Father Moore, the correct choice. Uh, it should pro Danny, follow up on that. What do you think about the ending? I don't really have much of a follow up other than I don't know if I bought that it would be better that she needed to die to to be a witness, you know, to, to show the truth of the demons. I, uh, couldn't they have got the demons out of her and she still have the story to tell? I think it had to go to the trial. I, I the, the uh, you know, there had to be this public where the law would declare the reality of, of the demonic realm. So I think, I think that was kind of why the need for her to die. At least that's how I took it. Did the uh, jury jury nullification? I guess it really wasn't jury nullification because they found him guilty. But did the uh, uh, time served? Do uh, you think accomplish that? Well, well I so you, I, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I thought I I yeah. I thought that the fact that it was uh, it was public. This was one of the most public. This was extremely publicized. Um, this was. Um, I, I think that was the point, you know, not so much the sentencing, but the fact that in a court of law that would be, um, you know, before the world, that this would be treated as a, as a reality. I, I think, that, you know, that was kind of the point. And her heroism, uh, Emily's heroism, to be willing to kind of fight the devil in this way, it brought other people to faith. I mean, her boyfriend, this other doctor, this psychiatrist, Dr. Cartwright, who was witness to the whole thing and then died. But he even said, I'm starting to pray again. You know, I think that it had to be big. It had to be dramatic. It had to be public and that it would bring about the conversion of, of people sort of thing. The, the verdict is interesting, though, because he is found guilty, which means the defense ultimately did not their case did, didn't win the day, but I think there was such love on the one, such trust in Father Moore. He's obviously not a criminal. One of the last lines of her closing statement was, how did she word it? Don't send someone who's not a criminal to jail or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think the jury very much believed that 
that he's, he's not a criminal, he's not someone who's a threat, he's not someone that needs to be rehabilitated in, in those kinds of ways. So from the church's perspective, and maybe even from Father Moore's, you know, a, a guilty verdict is probably not what he was hoping for, because mm. we want to see that the jury was in fact convinced that this was not the fault of him or the Roman Catholic Church or anyone else. However, not going to jail is better than going to jail. <laughs> and so at, at the end, there, it, the movie does play it as a victory, doesn't it? She's offered the uh, partner position, which she turns down, which was pretty dramatic. Like this had such an impact on her. She's, you know, what's, what's she going to go do now? Like join a convent or something? So I'm not sure. She's going her own direction. He's, you know, they're standing at the cemetery and it's raining, of course. And uh, you, you just get all of these symbols, these imageries of consummation that it's all come together now and it's worked out ha- as it should. But I, I don't think we can overlook the guilty hmm. verdict. That That is an interesting little twist. I mean, it could have been, well, this is based on a true story, right? It and is. And so yeah. uh, I think the in that way, weren't the priest found guilty in the actual trial of the story? I think did so. Did you all read up on that? I didn't really read a whole lot on the backstory, but... Yeah, I did a little bit a while back. Annalise Michelle, right? She's in Germany. This is 1976. There were a couple of priests, I think, and very similar. The facts are were similar. I think they were convicted for something. I'm not sure the too much of the detail. There was a movie made about this, actually after Emily Rose. There was a German movie made about this case that was in 2006 called Requiem. So. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, a lot of movies say they're based on true accounts, but I think this one actually kind of is and, and a little more, cl- a little bit closer to the actual uh, facts of the of the case than maybe sometimes is. Um, you know, a person can be guilty of breaking the law. That doesn't necessarily mean they are wrong. You know, I mean, because there are laws and there are laws, you know, there's higher laws. And so... Uh, he was, he, you know, I think they found there was ambiguity here, and I think they found, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit ambiguous why they would say we think he's guilty, but we don't think he should be punished anymore, or why the judge would mm. just go along with the jury in that situation, right? Well, I, that's I was wondering that, Danny. Like before the the juror spoke up and said, "Can we make a recommendation?" The judge was about to lay it down. You know, like I wonder how much was she going to give him. You know, right. we'll never know. But it seems like she had a pretty clear idea of what she was about to say, because uh, he had requested, you know, immediate sentencing. So, which I actually didn't know you could do. I don't know if that's true, right? <laughs> I, I don't know either if it's true. Well, all in all, um, Exorcism of Emily Rose is definitely, a, I think, a recommended movie. It's interesting to watch. It takes a, another point of view on exorcism films. Um, we've heard some good discussion here. Uh, Danny pointing out some potential weaknesses of the film from his point of view. and um, I think Scott and I may have liked it just a little bit better, but... All three. Would you give it a thumbs up, Danny? Oh, yeah. I absolutely recommend the movie. Okay. No doubt. Yeah. So three thumbs up. Uh, You should take a look at it. Let us know what you think, where we missed, what we missed. And uh, we love to hear back from you guys. Uh, We have one more episode of this first season dealing with exorcism. 
We're going to deal with that next week. So we hope you'll tune in and you'll continue the conversation with us here at The Blackest Eyes. Until that time, on behalf of Danny and Scott, stay scared out there, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>